certainly the main thing that we mourn on Tisha B'Av is the destruction of the temples, the first and second temple, both happened on the same day. The destruction of the first temple we spoke about two weeks ago in great detail when we told about the story of the prophet Jeremiah, whose own story is really the story of the destruction of the first temple. Today we're going to focus on the story of the destruction of the second temple, which is really the story of the what's called the first Jewish-Roman war. First Jewish-Roman war because historians consider there to have been two or even three Jewish-Roman wars. The second one did not take place in Israel, but in other places there was a rebellion across the empire um, a couple years after the first Jewish-Roman war. And then the second or third, depending on the historian, was the Bar-Koziba rebellion, um, which took place about 65 years or 70 years after the first war. So, but the first war was the most consequential um, and probably one of the most consequential, if not the most consequential event um, in Jewish history um, since Sinai. Um, firstly, it led to the death of, according to Josephus, one million Jews in Israel died in this, this war. Um, as a percentage of our people and in total number, it was probably second only to the Holocaust for the destruction of the number of Jews killed and a percentage of Jews killed. Historians think there were maybe 5, 6 million Jews at the time. So we're talking about perhaps 20% of Jews were at the time were killed in this war. Um, it was a terrible tragedy for our people. Um, another important impact of this was the temple was destroyed as a result of this war. It ended Jerusalem centered around the te- uh, sorry, Judaism centered around the temple. Remember that Two-thirds of Judaism involves, of the 613 commandments, involves the temple. Judaism without the temple is a much smaller Judaism. It's a very different kind of Judaism. It entered Judaism-centered, temple-centered Judaism because we had no temple in Jerusalem. Um, it also ended the sense of Israel being a state for the Jews, although we had already lost our independence, and although Jews remained after the war a majority in the country, in the land, um, but it began the dwindling of Jews and it really ended a sense of Israel being the land of the Jewish people. And its impact on Judaism is noted because we mark that as the beginning of our galut. Galut is the Hebrew word for exile. And we Jews have wandered for the past 2,000 years, uh, close to 2,000 years, from nation to nation, from land to land. Some places they treated us well, some places they didn't. Some places they sometimes treated us well, and sometimes they didn't. And uh, all of that wandering and all of that suffering, all um, we see the opening moments of that, or the starting of that open, uh, suffering, all began with this war and the destruction of our temple on Tisha B'Av. So all, and we see all later destruction, all later suffering, all as a result of this original destruction. The Jewish term for this war is the Chorban. The Chorban. Chorban. Chorban, which means destruction. Chorban. Actually, the Holocaust, for some years after the Holocaust, until the terms Holocaust and the Hebrew word Shoah were coined, which was some decades later, uh, for a very long time Jews were using the word Chorban for Holocaust as well. This was the worst thing that we knew. Um, so what exactly happened? So we have two main records of what happened. And knowing exactly what happened and how it happened is somewhat complicated. We have a very, very detailed accounts of this war. 
from many, many different sources, two main sources. The first source, and definitely the most detailed account, is a book called The Jewish War by a fellow called Yosef ben Matisyahu, or Josephus. Um, he wrote, he wrote a couple of different his, history books, and he wrote about this war and a couple other books, but he has a war, book dedicated to this war. Josephus was an eyewitness to the war on both sides. Um, at one point, he was fighting on the side of the Jews. On the other, then he switched sides at a certain point. And his count is very, very detailed and very, very extensive. However, he was also a traitor to our people. Um, switch sides in the middle of the most brutal war, um, who became a Roman, became a Roman citizen, um, and was employed by the Roman emperors for the rest of his life. And so his story is suspect, to say the least. Um, some things that he writes don't make much sense. He definitely paints the Roman emperors as wonderful people and great heroes. Um, and um, some of the things that he's written we know have been disproven um, by later archaeology um, or by his own works where he's contradicted himself. Um, he's definitely, his writings are biased by the Romans. Complicating things even more, he wrote the book um, 1900 years ago, which means that we, have, we don't have any originals. The oldest ex uh, existent copies we have are about 1,000 years old. So um, we have multiple versions of Josephus's book with variations of his different books. Now, we also interestingly have a Hebrew version of Josephus called Yosipun. Now, the Hebrew version of Josephus is very, very different than the Greek version of Josephus. And tra it's Latin and subsequent translations. They're extremely different. I mean, the storyline is more or less the same. The details are very different. It's much less supportive of the Romans, much more sided with the Jews. Many, many details are different. Um, some historians think that it's just a forgery written by Jews later. Many historians think that Josephus actually wrote two books. One for Romans, one for Jews. <laughs> two different stories. Go figure which one's right. So while we have a very, very detailed account in Josephus, it's a puzzle to try to figure out what's true and what's not. Historians have really struggled to try to guess What's accurate, what's not accurate, what's true, what he made up, what he corrupted, um, we don't really know. Our other main source is the Talmud. The Talmud in the book of Gittin has a very long tale, goes for a couple pages, where it talks about, um, Talmudic pages, which are big, um, where it talks about, um, the story, goes through the, the story of the war uh, in Quite, quite a lot of detail. Um, we also have many other bits and pieces throughout the Talmud and throughout different Midrashim, which are Jewish works from that period, that talk about this war and give us different bits and pieces of the war. Um, so we do have a lot of pieces. We also have some Roman records of the war and a lot of archaeological discovery. Um, together, like much of ancient history, it becomes trying to put together a puzzle. And um, this is trying to put together a puzzle where half your pieces are broken and you're missing most of the pieces. Right? So it becomes very difficult to try to put together. We have a lot of pieces, but try to fit, figure out which ones are accurate, which ones are broken, um, which, what goes to what could be somewhat complicated. But here's the story as best as we can. So just a little background first. The second temple was built under Persian rule. Remember the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. The Babylonian Empire, which had really been a... Um, which, had, uh, which was really a continuation of what had been the Assyrian Empire, 
Uh, the Babylonian Empire didn't last very long. It lasted about 70 years before it was taken over by the Persian Empire. So a Persian Mede Empire. Um, two vassal kings under the Babylonian Empire did the same thing that the Babylonians did. They essentially captured the town of Babylon and took over the empire, moving the capital from Babylon to a place called Susa in western Iran today. And so, um, or in Hebrew, Shushan. And so, um, so the, the, uh, according to Jewish tradition, there's some variations here between the Jews and the Greeks over here, but according to our tradition, the Persian Empire didn't last very long either. It lasted for, a little, for a few, uh, uh, about half a century until it itself was taken over by another group that was part of the Persian Empire, um, the Macedonians, led by a fellow called Alexander, and he captured the capital Susa, and he took over them and settled in Susa, made that his own capital, and he became the emperor of the Persian Empire, making it a Greek empire. Alexander dies um, fairly young. He's only king of this Persian Empire, Persian Greek Empire, for 10 years uh, before he dies, leaving no children. The empire is split um, between different Greek generals. Um, Israel, so the, land, the second temple was built under Persian rule, um, led by Cyrus and later Darius. Um, it was, Judea was a province in the Persian Empire. Uh, but we had our own temple and we had our own autonomy. Um, we, uh, after the fall of the collapse of the Persian Empire, we first fell under a Greek empire based in Egypt the, with the Ptolemies. Later, um, they were the kings in Egypt. Uh, later, Israel was captured by a northern Greek kingdom, um, the, the Syrian Greek kingdom, based in Antioch, which is in southern Turkey today. Uh, it was eastern Turkey, Syria. And um, then eventually, after a, um, one of the uh, Greek kings didn't allow us to practice Judaism, the Hashmonium, or Maccabees, led a rebellion and managed to create, get, create Jewish independence. Um, that did not last very long. It lasted a couple of decades, Jewish independence. Um, after the death of um, a, a king called Alexander Yanai, um, his wife became queen, Shalom Tzion. Um, how she became queen is a long story of its own. And then after her death, her two sons, who were both young men, both thought they should be king of Judea. And um, they fought a civil war over who should be king. Um, right as their civil war was going, the Roman general Pompey captured Syria, which was a Greek empire. And so they both sent a message to Pompey asking him to help them. And so he came in and essentially captured Israel. This is in 63 BCE. And Judea now has lost its independence and is under a nominal kingdom, a kingdom under the Roman Empire. Um, later, Herod kills the Hasmoneans and declares himself. He's an Idumean, he's not Jewish. He's from a nation south of Israel, and he declares himself king of Judea. Um, again, a vassal for the Romans. Um, later, after Herod's death in 4 BCE, the Romans end official independence and turn Judea into a Roman province, and it's ruled by procurators, which are, it's essentially a sub-province under Syria. So the governor was in Syria, and then there was kind of a sub-governor um, in Judea. Uh, their capital was Caesarea, um, uh, or uh, Caesarea. 
um, in, uh, which is on the coast in Israel. We were there for those that were part of our trip. So some Roman procurators were good to the Jews. Most of them were cruel. They disrespected Judaism. They had very, very high taxes because that's how they lived their lavish lifestyle. And they often allowed their soldiers to plunder and to harm Jews at will. Um, they also didn't like Judaism. Um, they disrespected monotheism, um, Jewish beliefs. Um, so there was a lot of friction over the years between the Romans uh, who were in control and the Jews who lived in the land. Um, it came, the friction, and there were all sorts of different flare-ups over the years, but the friction really reached a climax when in 66, the year 66 that is, um, when Florus became the Roman procurator of um, Judea, and he was more brutal and treated Jews worse than any of the previous ones, and it quickly leads to a, um, it quick, quickly led to a rebellion. Now, according to Josephus, the way the war began was Florus tried to raid the temple treasury, which was a common, um, which was a uh, common trick of the Roman procurators, because if you needed quick cash, the temple had a fund to support the, to support the temple and support the pilgrimage. Um, there was a three times a year pilgrimage for the three festivals. And so the temple fund was very wealthy. It was supported by Jews around the world. Jews by now were spread, lived in Babylon and throughout the Roman Empire. And so um, it was, there was always money there. So if you, they needed quick cash, good way to get cash is just show, send some soldiers to the temple and take out some cash. So um, he tried doing it. And um, the Jews were upset at him over other things at that point. And so uh, Jerusalem had narrow alleyways and the Jews blocked the Roman soldiers, refused to let them in, and even beat the Roman soldiers who tried to come to raid the temple treasury. Not only that, they then um, went around and um, with uh, buckets collecting money for Florus as if um, he was, you know, making a fund for him as if he was some poor man. And he saw that as um, very humiliating. And so he asked the Jews of Jerusalem to hand over the people who had humiliated him, which they refused to do. And um, he tried uh, sending his soldiers on deadly rampages through Jerusalem to kill Jews. And uh, the Jews responded by attacking the Romans and essentially uh, attacking the Roman garrisons in Jerusalem and kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem. So the Romans were now out of Jerusalem. Florus tried to bring a, uh, soldiers to re-enter Jerusalem and was rebuffed. And uh, Jerusalem was now Roman-free. And so um, now at this point, the Jewish leadership who had minimal control over the people and the populace, and the populace were uh, being driven very much by um, different militias that had been built over the years. Many of them were zealots were people who were um, anti of all sorts of different groups um, who either were just you know, bandits looking for personal gain. Many of them, though, were um, nationalistic groups that were wanted to get rid of the Romans and wanted to create Jewish independence. And so, but the religious leadership and civil leadership, the aristocrats, um, wanted to send a message going back to Rome to um, get a new procurator, which they had done before. Um, you know, if your governor is not behaving, you get a new one. That's the way it worked in the Roman Empire, um, so that they don't have problems anymore. And the Romans didn't want problems, right? They didn't want people that they had to fight with. So um, that would have been the ideal, except um, during this point, there was one group called, um, there was one group called uh, Sicari, led by a fellow called Menachem of the Galilee, 
that um, captured a Roman fortress that had been built by Herod in the Judean mountains called Masada. And um, they captured this Roman fortress, which had a huge storage of weapons, which is why, presumably why they captured it. And they took all those Roman weapons. And so capturing a major Roman fortress, major Roman weapon storage, um, was an act of war. And it was now war with the Romans. Um, but the final straw um, appears to have happened as follows. Um, the way Josephus tells the story is that the son of the high priest, whose name was Elazar, um, decided, uh, convinced the Kohanim, convinced the priests in the temple to stop offering the Roman emperor's sacrifice. The Roman emperor would offer, um, would require all religions to offer sacrifices in his honor in all of their temples around the Roman Empire uh, as a sign of um, respect for the Roman Emperor. And so he convinced them to stop offering the Roman sacrifice. Now the Talmud tells this story a little bit different than Josephus. Josephus may just not have bothered with the details. The Talmud says, and our tradition is that, and we, we have this all over our, um, the Talmud and Midrashim, that the temple was destroyed because of Jewish hatred. And it was destroyed and our um, exile began and the Chorban, the destruction came because of inter-Jewish rivalry. And as we'll see, there was a lot of Jewish fighting, civil war among Jews. But it wasn't just that. It was also personal an, uh, anonymity, uh, animosity sorry, between Jews. Jews just couldn't get along. And um, like a lot of major events that start from, are often triggered by very, very small Things The Talmud goes through um, a number of Jewish, important Jewish historical events that were triggered by very, very minor, you know, silly things. And that's happened throughout history, right? One small thing ends up triggering um, major wars. World War I started but with one assassination. Um, so there's a minor, a single event. And so the way the Talmud tells it is that there was a fellow in Jerusalem, uh, presumably a powerful aristocrat in Jerusalem, doesn't give us his name, um, who was making a party. He told his servant to invite a friend of his, his name was Kamtza, um, who would have presumably been a known um, leader in Jerusalem. And he instead invited another fellow by a very similar name, Bar Kamtza. The servant invited this other fellow to the party. Now, unknown to the servant, Bar Kamtza was a bitter enemy of the or the host of the party had a great dislike for this Bar Kamtza. So Bar Kamtza is invited to the party. He decides to show. He comes to the party. And um, the host sees his, this man whom he dislikes at the party. And he um, kicks him out of the party. He says, leave. I'm gonna, he forced him out of the party. Bar Kamtza says, um, says, I'm sorry, I guess it was a mistake. I thought you wanted to make up with me and invited me. Um, I'll pay for my dinner. And um, the host says, no, leave. And the um, Bar Kamsa says, I'll pay you for half the party if you let me stay. And he says, leave. And Bar Kamsa, um, uh, and, uh, and the host refuses. Bar Kamsa says, I'll pay you for the full party. He says, no, leave. And he picks him up and he throws him out. Now, at the party were many of the leadership of the Jewish people at the time, including many of the religious leadership, and nobody said anything. Nobody did anything. Bar Kamtza, who was apparently a um, 
very important figure in Israel at the time, was very, very upset over what happened. And upset not just at this host who, I guess, had this long-standing animosity for him, but at all the Jewish leadership. And he decided that he was going to trigger the heat must have known what was going on in the, um, in the country at the time and the um, issue they were having with the Romans, which similar things had happened before, and he decided to trigger a war. Um, he went back to Rome himself, and he, he must have had connections in Rome as a very important, very well-known um, Jewish leader. And um, he went back to the Romans, and he said, the Jews, are, um, the Jews are preparing for a full rebellion against you. You must send a... Um, military to crush the rebellion. And so the emperor, who was Nero at the time, um, was skeptical. He refused to believe it. He thought it was just a kind of another minor local incident that could be um, easily resolved. Um, you know, send, some, send a different governor and uh, resolve the incident. And Barkhamsa said, um, I can prove it to you because they don't bring the, t- the emperor's they won't bring the. They won't bring you your sacrifice anymore, and the emperor said, "Okay." He sent a animal together with Bar Kamsa, with a large contingent of soldiers to Jerusalem, and um, they arrive at Jerusalem. And um, now the leadership in Jerusalem in the temple, the way the Talmud says at the time, was still favoring trying to figure things out with the Romans, um, yet. Um, um, Yet Barkhamta was very much wanted a war um, to get back at the Jewish leadership. And, um, and you see the animosity here that Jews had to each other. Uh, he wanted to get back. And that most Jewish problems, we create ourselves. Um, and so we're often a big part of it. So um, Barkhamta, um, on the way, he knew the rules. He knew that if an animal has any cut in it, it's not fit for a sacrifice. And so, on the way, he cut the lip of the animal. And so, the sages see the animal. Uh, the Kohanim see the animal in the temple. Standard, they check the animal for any cuts. They find the cut in the animal. They can't bring the animal. What do you do? Find another animal? Find another animal. Or, if the soldiers are there watching what you're doing, you bring the animal. It's okay, you can break the rules to avoid a war. So you bring the animal, right? However, the Talmud says there was one fellow whose name was Zechariah ben Afkulis who um, refused to allow them to bring the animal and said, um, no way you're breaking. He was super, super um, careful about the commandments and said, no, we're, we're going to follow God's rules. We're not going to break the rules. We, he refused to allow them to bring the animal. He must have had some sway over there in the temple. Anyway, to end the story, they don't bring the animal. Um, and so the emperor gets the report. They refused his sacrifice. And um, the emperor takes, gets the message that, that that's a sign that they are actually in full rebellion. And so um, Emperor Nero sends a army, um, a full army, full-size army to fight against, uh, to ca- recapture Judea and end the Jewish rebellion. At this time in Israel, um, it's, the Romans have essentially retreated to a few handful of Roman cities like Caesarea 
Um, and most of Israel is now Roman free. Um, Israel essentially hastily, it's, it's chaos, there's chaos all over the land. The religious leadership together with um, aristocrats and other leaders uh, put to, hastily put together a national government um, and try to create some semblance of order, law and order. They also tried to create some organization, organize the different militias that couldn't stand each other into some form of army um, and um, try to solidify and fortify the different towns, cities, the city of Jerusalem. They also tried to collect... Um, they also tried to collect, we- uh, to collect storage, store food, and weapons, and whatever they're going to need for a protracted war. Uh, the goal of the leadership at this point, who never really wanted the war, according to the Talmud, and Josephus um, is similar, their goal at this point was to figure things out still with the Romans. They knew the Romans were sending an army. There was no way to avoid the war entirely. But if the, if the Romans face a difficult battle, and remember the Roman Empire was always facing battles all over the empire and always trying to cut their losses wherever they could. If the Romans see they face a difficult battle, the Jews were hoping they could eventually, at some point, the Romans will agree to a peace agreement um, at some point with... Um, um, on good terms, on good terms for the Jews, where they perhaps have more independence, or um, the governors have less control, have less power, the Roman soldiers are limited in what they could do, uh, better, better conditions. They, they never expected full independence, they thought they'd get better conditions. Um, that was the ideal. Now, there were, however, many groups, they were called zealots, who did not want that. They wanted full independence. And for full independence, these groups wanted a full-out war with the Romans. They didn't want a long, protracted war from behind um, fortified cities um, with a, to kind of wait out the Romans until the Romans want peace. Uh, they wanted a full-out, head-to-head war um, to, to become independent, uh, which was probably totally unrealistic. Um, anyway, so um, these Jews were upset about the strategy, And these zealots went and they destroyed much of the storage. The Talmud says that in the city of Jerusalem itself, they had put together enough supplies to last out 21 years of siege. There was no way the Romans could have sustained a large army at the gates of Jerusalem for 21 years. They could have easily survived the siege then. But the zealots destroyed all of the supplies. Jews, Jews destroyed their own supplies to force a head-to-head war with the Romans. And not only that, the Jewish militias could not get along and fought in Jerusalem. And different neighborhoods of Jerusalem fell under control of different militias. And they were fighting and killing each other within Jerusalem and across the land. Um, and there was a lot of bloodshed among Jews who were killing each other. And so the semblance of government that they had tried to create uh, was in name only because in reality things were controlled by these, different, by these many different militias um, that really were not, and each one, fighting each other rather than fighting the Romans. Um, so now at this time, um, in Rome itself, um, things um, started to collapse the Emperor Nero um, disappeared. Um, he disappears in the year 68. The war starts in the year 66. Um, he disappeared in the year 68. Um, where did Nero go? 
Nobody knows throughout Roman history there were all these theories. Um, the standard historians think he committed suicide. Um, there are all these different theories as to what happened to Nero. There were a lot of later people who claimed to be Nero that showed up um, in the, and claimed, yeah, claimed to be the emperor. So uh, what actually happened to Emperor Nero? Uh, he was known as the Mad Emperor. What actually happened to him? So the Talmud says something very interesting. The Talmud tells us, and this might be why the Romans never said this. The Talmud says that Nero went, led the armies to Jerusalem, to, to Israel. He came to Israel, and um, he started shooting arrows in different directions um, as kind of a sign as to whether he'll be successful or not. And if the wind blows the arrows towards, um, towards where he wants to battle, then he thinks um, he'll be successful. So he... Um, he starts shooting arrows in different directions, and he gets, and they, they always head towards Jerusalem. So he, um, they, the wind keeps blowing them towards Jerusalem. He sees that as a sign that he's going he's to be successful. Um, and then, um, but then he, the, there was an old, um, old thing that they used to do in Talmudic times um, was common. They used to ask children, Jewish children, Jews used to do this, ask Jewish children, what did you learn today? And they used to take kind of what they learned that day as a message from God. So the Emperor Nero tried doing this too. He found a Jewish child and he said, what did you learn today? And he says, oh, I learned that God is going to destroy the land of Edom for their, for their harming of Israel. Now, Jews always believed Edom, we did a class on this some time ago, that Edom, which was a land south of Israel, um, are the spiritual or even actual um, ancestors of the Romans. So he took this as a message that God was going to punish him. And he said, so God wants me to destroy Israel, and then he's going to punish me afterwards as a result. I don't want any part of this. Um, and then the Talmud says, Nero then decided that he was going to change his life and he was going to become Jewish. And so he disappeared and he converted. <laughs> That's why the Romans didn't know what happened. That's where he went. Anyway, meanwhile, Vespasian, um, who was one of the great generals, Roman generals, um, leads, the, leads the Roman army. He had been appointed by Nero. Um, to lead the army to, um, to Judea. And he, meanwhile, leads an army to Judea, capturing Judea town by town. Um, there's a lot of fortified cities, each one with militias in them. He captures town by town. Josephus um, claims to have been the leader um, in the Galilee. In his book, um, there's reason to doubt that claim. Um, in the Hebrew version, it doesn't say that. Um, he was just one of many officers. Um, and... Um, in the end, yeah, so um, it, it possibly, maybe not. Um, anyway, the town by town of the Galilee, the northern Israel falls to Vespasian um, until Vespasian with his army comes to the gates of Jerusalem in 68, two years into the war. He comes, the war started in 66, two years into the war, he reaches Jerusalem with a massive army. In the city, infighting had destroyed supplies, weakened the defenses weakened the fighters. They had been fighting in the city for two years straight now. There had been an ongoing civil war in the city, within the city of Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem at the same time had swelled because many people had fled the Roman onslaught. The Romans had a scorched earth policy. They considered this, in, this um, rebellion in Judea a major rebellion. Um, Judea was very central to the Roman Empire. Um, it stood between um, Egypt and Syria. It was in an important place. Um, Jew, um, Jews were an important population and so they were going to crush it at all costs um, so many Jews um, fled to Jerusalem there were about a million people at the beginning of the siege a million Jews living in Jerusalem 
at the beginning of the siege, mostly refugees. And um, at the same time, there's a civil war going on within the city. Um, Vespasian, um, Vespasian's legions arrive at the city, um, which is greatly weakened. The leadership in the city, the official leadership, wants to surrender. Vespasian offers good terms for surrender, um, which is essentially going back to where they were when they started. Um, the Jews want to surrender. Um, he'll spare the city. He'll spare the lives of the people. The leadership wants to surrender. However, the militias at the time, the zealots were in control, were in practical control, and refused to surrender under any costs. The Talmud tells the story that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the religious leader at the time. He had succeeded um, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, um, whom it's not clear exactly how it happened. Rabbi Shimon Gamliel had been the head of the um, Jewish government, the temporary Jewish government, the provisional government they had made um, after the Romans were thrown out of most of Israel. Um, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel at a certain point fell into Roman hands. Perhaps he had attempt- gone to the Romans to sue for peace. Um, he was killed by them. Um, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a senior, uh, became the religious leader of Israel. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai wants to smuggle himself outside of Jerusalem um, to negotiate with Vespasian directly. There's no way he could get out because the zealots control the gates. There's no way out. His nephew, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, had a nephew whose name was Abba Sikra, who was the leader of a group called the Sicarium, which was one of the most powerful zealot militias. So he calls his nephew and he says, I want to help go out, get out of Jerusalem. Help me out of Jerusalem. Abba Sikra says, there's nothing I could do. My men won't let. So, um, Rab, so Rabbi Yochanan says, I need a solution. Can you suggest something? Abba Sikra says, well, the only way, thing you can do is we're only, letting, uh, we're only letting people out for funerals. We don't bury, people aren't buried in Jerusalem until this day. Uh, we're never buried in the city of Jerusalem. It's forbidden according to Jewish law. They were letting people out for funerals. So, um, so we'll, we're, otherwise, there's no way you're getting out of the city. So um, anyone who was caught trying to leave the city by the Jews would be killed for desertion. So um, there's no way you're out of the city. So unless you go out dead. So Rabbi Yochanan spreads a rumor that he's very sick, has everyone pray for him, and then they spread a rumor that he has died. He, um, they have a great funeral procession for him. He's inside a coffin um, with his two students, um, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, later become great Jewish leaders themselves, um, carrying his coffin. No one else allowed to touch the coffin, they announce. Um, and um, they bring him to the gates. Now, the Sicarian guarding the gates with Rabbi Yochanan's nephew, Abba Sikra, standing right there, um, they're skeptical. They suspect a, plot, a ploy. Um, they say, let's open, let's open the, um, let's open the coffin. They, so Abba Sikra says, look, the Romans on the hill overlooking the city are watching. And they, they know that this is the procession for the funeral of the leader of Israel. And they see that you open the coffin. Look, what a terrible desecration or um, how, how will that look for Jews that you open the coffin of your own rabbi? And they say, okay, let's just stick spears in it. They say, how will that look if they, you put spears into the coffin of your rabbi and to the Romans? And Sorry? Desecrate the corpse. 
So having no choice, um, the Sicarium let him out and uh, they bring him out. They bring him to the Romans. He comes straight to Vespasian. Rabbi Yochanan comes to Vespasian and says, Greetings, your majesty. Vespasian says, You are, um, you are um, guilty of treason, calling me your majesty. I'm a general. Rabbi Yochanan says, No, the Senate just declared you as emperor of Rome. And indeed, minutes later, um, writers come telling him that the Senate had declared him as emperor of Rome. Remember, Nero had disappeared. It was called the Year of the Four Emperors. There were three other emperors, that la- each one lasting a couple months, and um, until the Senate in Rome declared Vespasian the emperor. So Vespasian is now the emperor, he says, tells Rabbi Yochanan. Now, Josephus in his book actually has a similar story about himself. After he surrenders to Vespasian, he tells Vespasian that he's going to be, that he's going to be the emperor. Um, chances are, since he's the author of the book, and he always promotes himself in the book. Chances are he took the known story about Rabbi Yochanan and just applied it to himself for the Romans. Um, so, um, so he. Uh, so anyway, so so, um, so he offers Rabbi Yochanan, tell me what you would like. Tell me one thing that you would like. Um, Rabbi Yochanan chooses not to um, ask him to spare the city. Um, and um, the Talmud has a whole discussion as to whether that was wise or not, uh, whether he thought, perhaps he thought that he would not have been, um, Vespasian would not have responded. Um, but he asked Rabbi Yochanan to spare the, um, spare the Ju- religious Judaism by allowing the, re- the religious leadership to escape to a nearby town called Yavna, where there was an academy, and allow the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council that we spoke about, couple weeks ago and the um, and the the major academies to move out of Jerusalem to Yavna following the war and Vespasian granted that request and Rabbi Yochanan moved to Yavna and over there he reestablished the academy and the Sanhedrin and while the temple was destroyed Judaism itself continued Vespasian left for Rome his son Titus takes over Titus later becomes an emperor himself after a two-year siege, Titus enters Jerusalem on the 17th of the month of Tammuz. It was a very, very brutal siege. Despite the infighting of the Jews and the Jews' weakened state, um, they, the, Titus was close to giving up many times, according to Josephus' details of the story. Um, and um, the, the, the defenders fought very bravely. But after two years, they gave up. It was terrible starvation in the city because all the supplies had been destroyed. And... Um, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was captured. They continued street to street, hand to hand fighting for three weeks until the Romans managed to breach the walls of the Temple Mount uh, where Fidus had retreated. They entered the temple uh, on the seventh of the month of Av. Um, and there's this hand to hand fighting all across the temple. Um, and then they, uh, on the ninth of the month of Av, they burn and destroy the temple. Uh, the fighting within Jerusalem the Romans killed huge, huge numbers of Jews. As we said before, Josephus numbers, the total number of people killed at over a million Jews being killed um, in this war, in this very, very brutal war. Um, The city of Jerusalem is totally destroyed as a result of this war. Um, Nobody lives in Jerusalem after this. It's not, uh, all the buildings are destroyed. Um, The temple itself is totally destroyed. The walls are raised um, by Titus. 
um, and most, much of the city is burned. Uh, there's really nothing left. All the survivors that survived in Jerusalem are taken by Titus as slaves to be sold on, in Roman slave markets. Um, the Talmud tells us that many of the... Um, many, because many slaves were bought not for work, but for, sexual, for sex work, um, and uh, many of the slaves jumped ship um, uh, on their way en route to Rome. Um, and so many of them died before even getting there. Um, but Jews were sold as slaves um, to the um, were sold as slaves for um, theaters and gladiators and um, and uh, all sorts of other slave work. And um, many many Jews were um, suffered in addition to the, the many many that were killed. So as a result of all of this, Israel was destroyed. Uh, the temple was gone, but Judaism continued thanks to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Um, and that was really the beginning of our destruction. That's what we mourn on Tisha B'Av. Um, that's, um, but just to finish off on a more positive note, the Talmud tells us um, about one of our great sages who witnessed the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a young man at the destruction of the temple, and he lived a very, very long life. He died following the Bar Koziba rebellion 70 years after the destruction of the temple. So he, um, he lived a very, very long life. Um, but he was a young man during the destruction of the temple. He escaped Jerusalem and uh, made it to Yavne. Um, but it says, well, after the, following the destruction, Rabbi Akiva was once walking um, along on Mount Scopus. Mount Scopus is a mountain east of Jerusalem from where you could see the Temple Mount. And um, he was standing with, he was going with his friends, a number of colleagues, and they saw the Temple Mount in ruins, and all the ruins of the temple, and they saw foxes walk running around the ruins of the temple. Now that actually follows a prediction in the book of Eich and the book of Lamentations. It says in Lamentations, foxes will go in the temple, which presumably was meant as a metaphor, foxes meaning these wicked people, but there were actual foxes going. And so the other rabbis who see it break down crying, seeing this terrible event. And Rabbi Akiva begins to laugh. And his friends say, Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? And he says, why are you crying? And they say, well, this is the place where the Holy of Holies, although the high priest was able to go there on Yom Kippur, and now it's destroyed, and foxes are going in it. And Rabbi Akiva says, that's why I am laughing. Because just as there were predictions in our prophets about the destruction, there are also predictions that following the destruction, we will eventually have a rebuilding, and the temple will eventually be rebuilt, and Israel will go back to its former glory. And so I know just as the first prophecy was fulfilled, the second one will be fulfilled as well. So though on the one hand we're very sad, at the same time we always have hope, um, knowing that uh, thankfully we've come to a much, much better place than we were back then. And we've gone, our lives have been up and down throughout the last 2,000 years as Jews. Um, But we do believe we'll come to a time when the third temple will be rebuilt um, in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And uh, we'll go back to that period that we've had before with the coming of Moshiach, which we pray for in all of our prayers.